We're going to continue this series on the kingdom of God, understanding the kingdom of God. One of the major truths that the Bible presents to us is that when we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, when we give our lives to him and we surrender to him, that something happens, spiritually speaking, in our citizenship is to another place. In other words, we no longer belong to this world when we belong to God. We belong to him, and therefore we're a part of his kingdom. By the way, it's been like, I got to stop, infomercial right here. Three weeks ago, James and Tanika got married. And uh, I just want to celebrate. They're back there if you guys don't know them. They're an amazing couple. So I just, we love you guys. I needed to stop to celebrate you. <laughs> but listen, the, when, we, when we're a part of the kingdom of God, there's a citizenship. We are no longer part of this world. This world is not a part of us. The, the world of rebellion, of fear, of sin, and marked by death, among other things, is not the world that rules over us. Instead, we're a part of the kingdom of God, which is a kingdom of righteousness, of peace, and of joy, and of eternal life, right? And so praise God for that. So what we started to do was to basically talk about that kingdom. What is that kingdom about? How does someone become a part of that kingdom? And just to recap the last couple of weeks, we said the first week that repentance is a requirement. In order to be a part of the kingdom of God, we need to receive the gift of God, which is a gift of repentance. What is repentance? A change of mind, a change of heart, turning from sin to turning to God, right? And that gift is not something that we come up by ourselves. It's not something that we do in our own strength. It begins with the revelation of God in our hearts, right? He reveals to us our sin sickness, and he reveals to us the need of a Savior. That's why sometimes we can preach to a blue in the face to someone, but unless God reveals in their hearts, right, that they're sin sick and need of a Savior, you know, they're not really going to hear our words. We're going to continue to preach because we don't know really what God's doing in the heart, but we're going to store that seed, right? And wait for that right time for that to take place. So, again, repentance is a gift from God that begins with his revelation in our hearts of our sin sickness and our need for him. And we said that no one is exempt from repentance. In other words, no matter who you are, where you come from, Jew or Gentile, Toledo or Oregon, right? It doesn't matter. No matter where you're from, everyone is in need, no matter who your parents were, no matter how much your daddy preached, right? No matter what heritage you have, each and every one has to come to this revelation, to this place of repentance, of recognizing I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And then last week, Robbie taught about being kingdom ambassadors, what it looks like to go about this world and be representatives of the kingdom. And what can we see? What, what do we notice about those people? And he said that the kingdom ambassadors are people who walk in the fear of the Lord. They walk in reverence of God, right? They walk in faith, in great faith. God calls us as kingdom ambassador, ambassadors to pray for big things, right? Because there's big things that need to happen in our world. And that they also walk in the favor of God. And one of the wonderful things that he described to us is that the favor of God doesn't always come in ways that we want. It's not just blessings financially and so forth. Sometimes it's discipline because God disciplines those that he loves. Amen. So it's a great word. Today I want to continue in Matthew chapter 3 as we go. It's positionally verse by verse there. We're going to pick up at the baptism of Jesus. And uh, 
The question that I believe this passage of Scripture answers for us is, what does the Bible tell us about the way God equips his children? What does the Bible tell us about the way God equips, equips his saints, his kingdom representatives, his soldiers? We, we need to understand that not only we don't belong to this world, but we're in the midst of a battle. We're in the midst of a war. And as Christians, we have to be aware that there is really a kingdom of darkness, that the enemy really has one plan, kill, steal, and destroy, that he's really looking for all kinds of avenues or cracks or breaches within our walk that he would come in and exploit and have his way. And we have to understand that this is how he operates. He's not trying to give us a bad time. He's not just trying to ruin our weekend. He's trying to ruin our lives, and he's trying to ruin our legacy and our children and our children's children. That's his plan, right? That's the reality of the enemy. We do not belong to this world. We are dead to this world, and we have a real enemy that fights against us, and he does have teeth. He, do, he is a roaring lion with teeth. In Pentecostal circles, you'll find people saying things like, well, he may roar, but he has no teeth. He has teeth. A lot of people I love are hurt because he's got teeth, right? So the enemy has teeth. I'm not going to disregard my enemy. I'm going to understand that I'm fighting a real enemy, and I'm going to engage in warfare, right? 2 Timothy chapter 2 says this, verse 4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And your view and my view as believers is that we're supposed to see ourselves as soldiers. We do not belong to this world. If you're here today and you've lived with a nagging feeling, like you just don't belong, with this reality that you're just not satisfied, that this life is not enough, may that hunger lead you to Jesus. Because the reality of the matter is that you've been made for eternity and nothing in this world can satisfy that hunger. Only the presence of Christ, only a relationship with God. So let that hunger lead you to understand you're a soldier. You can't park at ground zero. It's, it's a battleground. It's supposed to fight. And I just want you to hear from me as Christians, we're fighting in the midst of a fight against a real enemy with the strength of God. If we do not recognize that we're in the midst of a war, we will, one, be distracted by the pleasures of this world. Let me just tell you, the pleasures of this world is distracting for all of us if we let them be. If we turn our eyes from Jesus, something is going to catch our attention, and something will be that idol that we will worship. If we take if we take our eyes off the fact that we're in the midst of a war, we will be blindsided by the enemy. If we take our eyes off the fact that we're in the middle of a war, we won't complete the mission. And if we don't complete the mission, we won't hear good and faithful servants. Right? That's the reality right now. And so you didn't begin this fight so that you could not finish. You didn't enlist to defeat and God has not called you so that you can be defeated. You have a real war, you got a real enemy, you got real issues, you got trials coming your way. God's trying to bless you through your trials. The enemy's trying to steal God's blessing in the midst of the trial. What are you going to do, right? 
So what does the Bible tell us about how God equips us for battle? How he equips us to be his representative? Maybe we, maybe we have the wrong thought about how he equips us, and we don't even recognize it. Maybe we think God throws us out there to the wolves. We've been through something that just said, where was God in the midst of that? Maybe we just don't feel prepared for uh, the battle, and there are things that we went through that we just felt like, man, there's no way I'm equipped to deal with this. Maybe we think that we don't have what it takes to be a Christian in this world. Many of people feel that way. One of my favorite bands before I came to faith in Christ was a rock band by the name of Live that said, uh, basically in one of the most famous songs that they sang called I Alone Love You. He said, they teach you, they, they love you, but then they leave you out there hanging to fate by yourself. I alone love you. Don't put your faith in anything else. Don't put your faith in anyone else. It's this idea, though, just you. You're alone in this world. A lot of people who live in life that way, a lot of people who live Christianity that way, but that's not the way of the kingdom of God. So what does the Bible tell us? about the way God equips us. I believe Matthew 3, as we look at the baptism of Jesus and the way God dealt with Jesus, that we will see how God equips his people. I know it's a different way to look at this scripture, but I believe that's one of the major questions that this scripture answers for us. Let's read that. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 on down. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, but John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Powerful scripture. Now, are there scriptures where you say, when I get to heaven, I hope there's like a replay. I want to see that. Right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for how you equip us. I plead your anointing this morning to preach your word and receive it. Lord, let us see your face today as we look at your word and know who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So John had been preaching that the Messiah would baptize with a baptism of fire. Here's John the Baptist, radical dude. He's baptizing people, a baptism of repentance. And he says that after me will come someone who has a baptism that's greater than me. It's a baptism of fire. And it's very important what's happening here culturally because as John is baptizing, he's baptizing the Jews, which by the way, never thought they needed baptism, right? They, it was really a baptism that a lot of the Gentiles who wanted to be Jews or wanted to practice Judaism begin to be a part of, right? And so uh, Jews weren't necessarily baptized. Why? Because they were from the home, so they thought they didn't need baptism because they already belonged. It's kind of like living in a home and saying, well, I don't have to follow the rules. I don't have to do anything because those are my parents. So I don't have to follow the rules. Then John the Baptist all of a sudden comes on the scene by the power of God, in the spirit of Elijah, and he begins to tell the Jew, you're a sinner. You are not ready 
You need to repent before judgment comes. And it is shaking culturally what hap- what's happening there. And people are, they're turning, to, they're turning uh, their lives to the kingdom by the droves, by beginning, what, beginning the way of the kingdom by repentance. Now, in the process of that, here comes Jesus. He's going to baptize with a baptism of fire. And we know that to be the baptism of the Holy Spirit that fills us, that empowers us to be his witnesses, that empowers us to be holy, that gives us the gifts, all that good stuff. And here comes Jesus. And he comes to John the Baptist, and John is like weirded out, right? He just, what do I do with this? He's the one that baptizes with fire, and he is coming to me. And I am baptizing, my baptism is a baptism of repentance of sin. Yet he has no sin because he's the Lamb of God. Right? Can you imagine here? It's one of the theological questions that a lot of people struggle with. Why would Jesus be baptized in the baptism of John the Baptist if he was free from sin? Remember, if Jesus was not sinless, he cannot be our Savior. It's a doctrinal truth that we cannot forsake. There's a lot of theologians, a lot of people with degrees out there who are trying to discredit this reality. Don't ever let anyone discredit the reality that Jesus was free from sin. Why was he free from sin? Because even though he was fully human, able to sympathize with our weaknesses, he was also fully God. Okay? And being fully God, he was able to withstand the test. Yet being fully human, he was able to redeem us. Isn't that good news? It's very important. There is no salvation if our Christ is not free from sin. Because then he wouldn't be a worthy sacrifice for our God. We understand that. Don't let the enemy deconstruct, is the word they're using, deconstruct destroy your foundation you understand so here comes john he says how am i why am i baptizing you why should i baptize you and jesus replies to him i must be baptized to fulfill all righteousness so what did jesus mean when he said i must be baptized by you to fulfill all righteousness it is if Jesus, as Jesus is saying, I must be baptized, but not because of sin, but in order to fulfill all righteousness. You see, Jesus did several things by being baptized by John. Number one, he was endorsing his ministry. Number one, by him coming to John, he's saying this ministry is a ministry that's approved by God. Right? And here is Jesus endorsing the ministry of John the Baptist. Number two, Jesus, even though he's not coming to the water because he's a sinner, he's coming to the water for sinners. He's the one that will receive the baptism of the cross and raise to new life and give us new life. So Jesus came to the waters and gave us an example of what his ministry was going to look like. This is what I'm going to do for you. Robbie, this is what I'm going to do for you, Crystal. I will be baptized. I will die and suffer on the cross and be raised to new life for you, right? So Jesus' baptism was a symbol of what he was going to accomplish through the cross and his resurrection. And now, when he said, this is what he means to fulfill, when he says, uh, to fulfill all righteousness, what he was saying is, I will pay the full price that needs to be paid for righteousness so that you can be redeemed. Jesus is saying, I am able to pay the price so that you can be in right standing with God because right now you're not in right standing with him and nothing that you can do will make you be a person who's in right standing with God. But if I die, if I am baptized in the baptism of the cross and raised to new life, then I can bring you with me. Good news. 
Anybody with me? That's really good news. So Colossians chapter 2 talks about this legal transaction that happened in the spiritual realm when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. Check this out. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, that's me, that's Jim, it's Becca. And you who were dead in your trespasses, dead in your sins, and in the works of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all. Our trespasses. It's a big deal. Not some, not a few. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. Trespasses means all of the ways that we cross the law of God, all of the way that we transgress against God. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Okay. This is legal language. You are standing before the judge, and there is a docket with all of your, with your Norris report. It has every single thing that you've committed against God. And not by the eyes of men, not by the eyes of a camera caught on a smartphone, but by the eyes of the one who never sleeps. He sees how you and I have broken every legal demand. And it has been spiritually recorded. Your sin has been spiritually recorded before God because someone has to pay the price. Do you understand that? That is a legal, spiritual docu document that stands before the face of God but Jesus. But Jesus took that record, that legal demand against you, and he grabbed it and he nailed it to the cross. You understand that? And the blood of Jesus made that piece of paper white as snow, cleansed that sin off of you. This is the power of what happened in the spiritual realm. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He not only forgave you of your sins, but listen to what the Lord has done. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing them in him, uh, triumphing over them in him. Isn't that good news? That's good news. And it has this idea when a king is taken over a land and taken over a kingdom, and then he begins to drag us. He rides on his horse. He begins to drag his enemies before his town. And he says, I've defeated my enemy. And the whole nation begins to roar and shouts of victory. Well, your enemy of condemnation, your enemy of fear, your enemy of shame, your enemy of whatever sin, sickness, plague you is being dragged because Jesus has disarmed your enemy. You understand that today? And this is in the universe, in that spiritual unseen world 
our champion rides in a stallion. And every single day that you live, the heavens see that your enemies have been disarmed. You understand that today? Your enemy has been disarmed. You have been chosen, not by your works, but by Jesus and given new life by his death and resurrection. You were dead in sin and your lack of belonging, but now you're alive and forgiven. How he canceled, paid in full the record of your debt. On the cross, he defeated the enemies that enslaved you. Listen, have you come to Jesus understanding that you're in need of a Savior? Do you understand today? Have you given your life to him as Lord and say, Lord, I surrendered? And you need to understand this. Your enemy doesn't have any power over you unless you give it to him. Because the Word of God says that your enemies have been disarmed. You may play with those chains, but those chains don't have a lock. And there's a whole lot of Christians who like to play with chains. I know what it's like to play with chains. A whole lot of Christians who like to play with bondage. A whole lot of Christians who like to play with stronghold. But I want you to know that if today you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, that there's a Jesus who has a cross, and he can take your record of debt that stand against him, and he can nail that on his cross. Are you with me today? So when Jesus was baptized, what else does it tell us? It tells us this. His baptism tells us that he is the son of God, that he is approved by God, that he is empowered by God, and that he is commissioned by God. Notice what God did when his son was baptized. Son was baptized, doesn't tell us how the baptism happened. You know, we just know that after he came out of the waters, does the Bible say, the heavens open up, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. Consequently, culturally speaking, a dove is representative of the word of God. Certain commentaries would say that what dove represents the voice of God, the prophetic anointing of God, the power of God. And again, this is very important because remember that there were 400 years of silence, right? And this is also very important because the, his name is Emmanuel, God with us. So when John saw that, he recognized this is the one who carries the word and the fullness of God. So he has been anointed without measure, John describes in chapter 1, right? John chapter 1. And so then you have this reality of the dove that descended on him. We know that's the power and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. But we also hear the Father, this is my son. In him I am well pleased. And that statement is actually a mixture of two prophecies found in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and another one beginning in Isaiah chapter 42 to Isaiah 53, which begins to speak about the Lamb of God. And in this statement that God declared over the Son, as he said, this is my Son, in him I am well pleased, Matthew is trying to get the writer to understand that this Jesus is both the Son of God and the Lamb of God. So in that statement, God is not only saying, my, this is my son, I love you, I'm proud of you, but he's also saying, you are my son, I am pleased with you, and this is the journey. It was a statement. This is my chosen son. 
And I have a mission for him that culminates raising from the dead after dying on the cross. William Barclay commentary says it this way. So in the baptism, there came to Jesus two certainties. The certainty that he was indeed the chosen one of God and the certainty that the way in front of him was the way of the cross. In that moment, he knew that he was chosen to be king. But he also knew that his throne must be a cross. In that moment, he knew that he was destined to be a conqueror, but that his conquest must have as its only weapon the power of suffering love. In that moment, there was set before Jesus both his task and the only way to fulfill that task. It's a powerful, powerful statement of Jesus Christ. Thereafter, you see in John chapter 1, verse 29, that John refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God. And no Jew, no Jew was confused about what this meant. It wasn't just innocent. It wasn't just pure. It was the one chosen to be slaughtered for the sins of many. And in the creation museum, you'll find that there's a moment where they have this woman acting like Mary. And Mary tells the story about how God told her that you will have my son. And at one point, Mary puts her head up, and you see her watery eyes as she says, the Lord told me that I will have his son, but he didn't tell me that he would also be his lamb. I want you to think about that reality. God, in that moment, approved Jesus. He affirmed Jesus, he empowered Jesus, and he commissioned Jesus. His baptism also serves as the public installment of Jesus' ministry. God's, uh, in other words, in the midst of that, the Father approved emphatically, not only that he was the Son, but emphatically that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross was exactly how he was to fulfill the ministry. Now, what does this scripture tell us about the way the Father equips us? What does it tell us about this war that we're in and how God equips us to deal with the battle? Before I say that, how many believers know today that Jesus overcame death in the grave? How many know that he was more than a conqueror? How many know that that cross did not compare to the glory that he received? Do you live with that awareness today? Number one, how does God equip us for battle? God equips us for battle with his powerful affirmation. God equips us for battle with his powerful affirmation. Jesus was confident that he would fulfill the mission that he was given because of the Father's affirmation over him. The Father declared his belonging. The Father declared his approval. The Father empowered him for the mission. And in the same way, if you have entrusted your life to Jesus, he affirms you so that you can represent him well out in the world. He affirms you. And that's the number one thing that you need 
uh, to understand about this mission that God's given you, okay? Part of the kingdom of God, just like we said before, just like you receive repentance, you got to receive the affirmation of the Father. And how has he affirmed you? He affirms us through his sacrifice on the cross. You have been redeemed. He affirms you through his adoption. You have been chosen. He affirms us through the presence of the Holy Spirit. You have been empowered. He affirms us by sending us out on a mission. You have been commissioned. Notice that God's affirmation is not based on his trust on our ability. It is based on his ability. All of God's affirmation is not based on your ability to fulfill what he's called you to do. All of his affirmation is based on the strength of God. That's good news. Can I just tell you this? As parents, as leaders, as disciplers, you and I have to be like God and be people who speak words of affirmation. Can you imagine if Jesus, if you saw in the account of Jesus speaking to his disciples, demeaning them, criticizing them everywhere that they went, calling them stupid and fools and ignorant? You will never find Jesus discipling his disciples like that because that is not the way of the kingdom. In the same way, you will never produce good fruit. You will never see good fruit in your children's life by criticizing them, calling them foolish, and making them feel like they're inept of making good decisions. You will actually have the opposite, which is rebellion. Fathers, you have an incredible responsibility, a responsibility that's beyond your strength. You need to rely on God to do this. You have the authority of God to speak life over your children, over your wife, over your house. You can misuse and cause a lot of ruckus and destruction. And when your children grow up and they rebel against the way, remember when you made them feel foolish. Remember when you criticized them. Why? Because that will have a direct impact on the men and women that they will become. I'm not trying to make anyone feel condemned, but I'm tired of hearing parents complain about their children, criticize their children without ever speaking a word of affirmation. Your words have power. The Bible tells us that we will give account for every frivolous word that we speak, every careless word that we speak. Now I want you to understand those who are here. That means all of us need to repent. And some of us are on the other side. We're beating ourselves up so bad for the things that we have spoken. And what God requires is a broken heart to come to him. But some of us are acting like the way our kids live and the way things have turned out have nothing to do with our actions. And you're lying to yourself. And Psalm 36 says, the wicked lie in their hearts. So much so that they cannot even detect or hate their own sin. And I don't, I don't want to be that person. I, I, God, don't pendulum swing. Don't be the person that condemns themselves because of the things that you said. Just repent and come with your brokenness before God. But don't be the person that ignores the fact that you had a hand in the disaster that's plaguing your home. As parents, leaders, teachers, disciples, are we speaking words of affirmation? over those that God has entrusted us with. Listen, there is no exemption. Number two, the last point, 
And number one, how does God equip us? With his powerful, with his powerful affirmation. Secondly, let me just say this. There is no exception to the Father's affirmation. Just like repentance, we said, in order for us to be a part of the kingdom of God, we need to receive repentance, right? In the same way that we need to, this fullness, that we need to come to God in our brokenness, with our broken hearts, understanding that we're sinners in need of a Savior. We need to embrace all of that 100%, and at the same time, embrace 100% all of the affirmation of God that comes through his word and through his Holy Spirit. Are you with me today? Right? A Christian who lives in the realm of repentance without affirmation becomes critical. Right? Because they only see the negative. They only see the negative. A a Christian who only wants the affirmation and doesn't want uh, repentance becomes a heretic. They teach stuff that's not truth, right? We need to receive 100% repentance. We need to receive 100% the affirmation of the Father. You see, because when you look at the Word of God and what the Word declares, how do we receive the Word of God? How do we receive this affirmation? By believing what the Word of God says about Nick Bailey. Believing what the Word of God says uh, says about you guys, each and every one of you. Believe what the Word of God says about John. Believe what the Word of God says about Brittany. Believe what the Word of God says about John here. Believe, what does the Word of God say about you? You see, you may have been rejected before, but now you're chosen. You may have been hated and disregarded by others, but now nothing can separate you from the love of God. You may have been owned by fear before, but now you have a spirit of power, love, and of peace of mind. You may have been defeated before, but now you're victorious in Jesus. You may have been a loser before, but now you're more than a conqueror. You may have been overwhelmed by regrets before, but now you're overcome by grace. You may have been a worthless sinner before, but now you're a precious saint. You may have been a hopeless wanderer before, but now you are a royal priesthood. You may have been a slave to darkness, but now you dance in this marvelous light. You may have been a prisoner of war, but now you are a mighty warrior. You may have been foolish before, but now the wisdom of God is available to you. You may have been broke before, but now you know the kingdom of heaven is yours. You may have been broken beyond repair, but now that place of your brokenness, God has allowed a river, a living water to come out of you to be your testimony that you overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony. Would you stand with me today? Jesus, all 30 years, 30 years, Preparing, waiting for the moment. The Father said it's time. And it begins by you meeting John at the waters. To give them an example of what you're going to do for them. John says, why why would I baptize you? It has to happen to fulfill all righteousness. He's baptized. Comes out of the water. Can you imagine the Father in heaven with tears in his eyes? He knows that there will be one day 
an eternity past and eternity future where there will be separation between him and his son only one day. That on that day, the son that he loves will become the sin that you sin and the sin that he hates so that we can be restored. That on one day, the son will cry out to him, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows. And with tears in his eyes, all of heaven moves to the watery eyes of God. The heavens open up. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove. This is my son. In him I am well pleased. Well, the moment you gave your life to God, he said to you, I have not only forgiven you, my intention is not just to forgive you. My intention is to cleanse you. My, intent, and my intention is not just to cleanse you. My intention is to fill you. My intention is not just to fill you. My intention is to empower you. And I am not like some dictator sending you on some kamikaze mission to destroy yourself for me. No, I'm sending you on a mission to me more than an overcomer. I go with you. I go behind you, I go in front of you, I surround you, and I will fight your battles. This is how he equips you. Let's pray. Every altar worker here, would you come to the altar right now? And join me here. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we come before you today. And Lord, we love the kingdom of God. We love the gift of repentance. We embrace it 100%. And Lord, we want to embrace 100%, 100% the gift of your affirmation. The gift of your affirmation. Some of us have never been affirmed before, and it's like a foreign reality. It, we don't even know what that looks like. We, some of us never had a father who looked at us and said, I love you, and I am proud of you. And now the citizenship has changed, and now we belong to your kingdom. And you've been trying to speak that over our lives, but we don't know how to receive that. We don't even know how to walk in that. And the more we hear it, we, try to, we run away. But today, I thank you that there is power to receive your affirmation. Power to walk in the fullness of what you have for us. Not just forgiveness, not just cleansing, not just filling, not just empowerment, but commission, not just commission, but intimacy, intimacy Not that you would send us alone, but that you go before us, that you would go behind us, that you would surround us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, you know what, I need to receive the affirmation of the Father. I need to receive both repentance and affirmation need to receive them fully. 
And uh, we did have an altar call for repentance, but if today you, you realize that you need to come before the Lord with your brokenness, ask for his forgiveness, his cleansing, he receives you today. And we'd like to welcome you to come to the altar right now. The word of God says, if you put your trust in Jesus, you will never be put to shame. If you come to him with all your brokenness, vulnerable before him, you will never be put to shame. He's a good God. He's a gracious God. So we welcome you today. We'd love to pray with you. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, Pastor, I need to receive the affirmation of God. I keep fighting it and fighting it. I know it's an awkward call. Some of you here have a hard time receiving the love of God. You realize today, wow, that's a stumbling block to my victory. That's a stumbling block to me overcoming because I am not receiving the fullness of his grace over me. I keep saying I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. And if that's you, you're saying you're not worthy, you're not worthy, you know. Let me ask you, I ask you this question humbly. Who are you to question the wisdom of God? Who are you to question the power of God? It is the delight of God to forgive you. It is the delight of God to affirm you. Receive his blessings. Come up to the altar. Let's pray with you today. Let's pray with you. There's one more thing that I left to the altar call. That is the Father didn't only affirm through his words, but he affirmed through his Holy Spirit. And we believe in the Holy Spirit. And today, for whatever reason or another, you sense that you're in need of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've quenched the Holy Spirit. Maybe sin areas in your life have grieved the Holy Spirit. Or maybe you just have had an attitude that says, you know, that kind of supernatural stuff I'm just staying away from. I'm just thankful for forgiveness, but the Holy Spirit will deal with that in heaven. I want you to know that God, God wants to just empower you through the presence of his Holy Spirit in your life. There's nothing more wonderful than the intimacy, the holiness that comes as we commune with God through his Holy Spirit. And that is, that is something God wants to be a reality for you. And for the youth, that's not something God wants to be a reality for you, not just for your parents, not just for those in ministry, not just for a few. The Bible says, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on my sons and my daughters. So if you're here today and you're saying, okay, that's me. I make a commitment to pursue the Holy Spirit. Would you come to the altar right now? Would you come to the altar right now? Someone say, well, how do I pursue the Holy Spirit? Really simple. You ready? Ask. Really simple. Ready? Obey. Ask. Obey. He leads you. The Word leads you. Obey. Really simple. You ready? Be about His mission instead of yours. Say, God, okay, show me your mission instead of mine. The Holy Spirit's going to meet you there 100%. Amen? And the altars are here. Would you come up to the altar? Let's pray. Let me pray with you as we release this morning. In the name of Jesus, I pray that the Rock Church will be a church that walks in repentance and affirmation. Pray that every individual here will be people who walk in repentance and affirmation that the fullness of your kingdom will do their work, its work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.